Turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. You haven't heard that in quite a while as we've been in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to take just a brief break this morning as we consider ordination and honor of godly leadership within the church. And the book of Hebrews speaks to that, Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look just briefly at two verses this morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 13, we'll be looking at verse 7. And then verse 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the ongoing ministry of your word and spirit. And just as you established your church in days of old, you continue to work in and through your church. And so, Father, we look to you this morning and ask that you would continue to lead and to guide us as a church. That you, by your word and spirit, would continue to raise up godly leadership in our midst and that you would continue for the glory of Christ throughout the world to establish this congregation filled with growing mature believers and followers of Christ that together we might love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves we pray in Christ's name amen please be seated As we study the New Testament, we see that God established His church through the work of Christ. And an important aspect of those foundational days was the establishment of godly, biblical leadership. The book of Acts and 1 Timothy and the book of Titus remind us of biblical qualifications for the offices of both elder and deacon. And the book of Hebrews also gives us a window of insight and to what that leadership should be, and the response of God's people to that leadership. You know, today in our culture, there is much confusion. There is much animosity towards uh, leadership and towards authority. There's as much distrust as there is confusion, and sometimes for good reason. Uh, throughout history and governments, throughout church history, there have been the abuse and misuse of leadership and authority and those burned by such leadership remain somewhat skeptical and cynical and sometimes quietly or not so quietly they've resolved in their hearts that there's going to be a resistance towards any kind of authority so we have an opportunity this morning to ordain three men to the office of elder one to the office of deacon and we have to ask the question what does God want us to understand about biblical authority and God's people's response to such authority. One of the first things that we should be reminded of as we study Scripture, and we're reminded of in many passages, including this one, is that church leadership and church leaders have been granted authority by Christ Himself. That's why the writer can say words like obey and submit. 
But we have to understand the source of that authority, the source of that leadership, and that is the person and work of Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church. When we think of authority, we must first think of the authority of Christ himself. He is the only king and head of the church, the only one worthy of adoration and praise and the affections of our hearts and full obedience in all aspects of life. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the only king and head. It's his church. Years ago, Becky was working in a classroom with a, uh, several children and uh, the, the uh, craft that morning had some glitter glue involved with it and she couldn't open the glitter glue. She was squeezing the tube and all of a sudden it opened up and squirt glitter glue on the ceiling tile. And you could hear the children, ooh, ah, and then all of a sudden the silence is broken by a child saying, that's okay, your husband owns the church. <laughs> no, he doesn't. The church does not belong to any pastors or elders or deacons or any congregation. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. The church has been bought and paid for with His own blood. And so we often sing the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is His new creation through water and the Word from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Any authority that officers have is a derived authority from Jesus. That's the only reason that the writer can say, obey them, submit to them. It's Christ's ultimate authority that's in sight here. Do you remember as Jesus just before he ascended into heaven, in his great commission, he declared all, all what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Any authority that officers of the church have is a derived authority from Jesus. So what kind of authority is it? What does it look like? How should it be manifested in the life and body of the church? There have been so many abuses and misuses of this authority, so to what kind of authority do the Scriptures have particularly in mind? And I believe at least in this passage we see that the divinely derived authority of the officers in the church is primarily ministerial, declarative, and accountable. What do we mean by that? Well, let me first say what it does not mean. Jesus and the Apostle Peter were very clear it's not to be a heavy-handed authority. We're not to rule over or lord over others as the world often does. It's a different kind of authority and a different kind of ministry. Rather than lording it over with heavy-handed leadership, biblical leadership is modeled after in the manner and the ministry of Jesus himself. And so first, the authority is ministerial. It is pastoral in nature the officers are to lead by example in fact the very word here leaders can also be translated guides we're to guide people how not simply by our words but what does it say in verse 7 consider the outcome of their way of life their, their lifestyle 
uh, the, the character as God's Spirit is conforming us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Himself. Consider their way of life, the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Paul was able to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Certainly not perfectly, but that was the passion of Paul's heart to exhibit Christ-likeness in his ministry towards the sheep. And so the writer of the Hebrews says we're to follow the examples of our leaders in their participation in the life and work and ministry and worship of, of the church. Follow their example in their growth in grace. In the heart transformation of conforming more into the image and likeness of Jesus. Follow their example in their ministry of hospitality, of open hearts and open homes. Follow their example in their marriage and family life, in their family worship, in their devotional lives, in their prayers both publicly and privately, in their passion to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In these things, follow their examples. This is what the ministry of shepherding and a ministerial authority looks like. And I know as an elder in the church and other elders and deacons, we, we feel the weight of this, do we not? Of knowing that God says to us, others should consider your way of life, your passion for the gospel. Uh, your devotional life, the outcome of our lives, does that not cause us to fall on our knees and confess how woefully we have done this at times? Does it not cause us to fall on our knees in great dependence upon Christ and His grace and mercy and the power of His Holy Spirit to set before a congregation what it means to follow Jesus? And when we fall short, what does it look like to be quick to repent? And to get up in the strength of Christ and to continue to lead even with a limp at times. The authority granted by Jesus is first and foremost ministerial, caring for souls. It's pastoral. It's shepherding in the most profound sense of the word. A deep caring for the souls, verse 17. But secondly, it's to be a leadership that is declarative. You notice in verse 7... We're told of those leaders who spoke to us the Word of God. Those who have taught and admonished and encouraged and equipped the saints with the ministry of the Word. Our calling is to make plain the mind and heart and will of God through the Word of God to the people of God. And those scattered, and the writer of the Hebrews was telling of those churches scattered, this is what godly leadership looks like. A ministry that deeply cares for souls and a ministry that applies the Word of God to our hearts. The officers of Christ's church should be holding up the Word of God individually and in, in larger contexts. We should be pointing regularly the person and work of Christ through the ministry of the Word. The hope of glory through the ministry of the Word. The life-changing power of the Gospel through the ministry of the Word of God. We should, in a sense, be somewhat like what Charles Spurgeon said about John Bunyan, you've heard me often say, cut him and he bleeds Bible. But I might add, cut him and he bleeds gospel. Cut him and he bleeds 
Christ for his people. This is the ministry to which we've been called. It's ministerial. It's declarative. And finally, that authority is accountable. Look again at verse 17. They, that is the leaders, are to keep watch over your souls. There's the ministerial, the shepherding, the pastoring. To keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Church leaders, we are held accountable not only to God's people, but ultimately to God Himself. This is why James wrote in his letter, not many of you should be teachers of the Word because we will be held to a greater accountability, a higher standard, a greater strictness. Church leadership, therefore, should never be entered into lightly or tritely. And I'm thankful throughout the history of this church that's been the case. There has been selection, a nomination by congregation of people who say, I think these people have the gifts. There's been year-long process in, in working through and thinking through and praying through uh, that calling. And then you as a congregation actually voted before the Lord that you believe these three men that will be ordained and installed today were called of God. It's not something light and trite in which we en- uh, enter into. The ministry is to be ministerial, declarative, and ultimately accountable to God. So if by God's grace... That's just a small picture of what godly church biblical leadership looks like. Then what is to be the response of God's people to such leadership? Well, God's people are to display honor and obedience to the authority of their leaders. Obey your leaders, we're told. Submit to them. Uh, The leaders are accountable to God, but do you realize that the members of this body are also accountable to God in terms of your response to that leadership. So what ought this obedience and submission on the part of God's people look like towards godly leadership? Well, first, let me encourage you, if you look at the very next verse, verse 18, right after the writer of the Hebrews uh, paints this picture of Godly leadership and the responsibility and the fact that we will be held accountable before God. He says, pray for us. We know our feebleness and frailty. We know our weaknesses and our inadequacies. Pray for us that God would strengthen us and grant us wisdom. Pray for our protection. Pray for the guarding of our hearts. Pray for protection from the evil one who despises the church and who often puts a target on the back of church leaders. Pray for wisdom and strength. Pray for fresh filling of the Spirit. Pray for ongoing repentance and and a growing increase of faith. Pray. I cannot thank you enough, those of you who regularly pray for me and pray for our leadership. We desperately need that leadership. One Sunday morning when I was particularly discouraged and wasn't even sure I had the strength to preach, I got a text that morning right in the middle of reviewing that simply said, praying for you. You don't know what that means. And how desperately we, as feeble and frail leaders who often lead with a limp, desperately need your prayers. And thank you for those who are faithful in praying for us. Second, the scripture encourages us to give honor and respect in that obedience. The attitude towards authority 
is reflective of our relationship with the Christ in many ways. Scripture often warns against the tendency to murmur and grumble and complain. I've spent significant hours in the last several months pouring into the book of Numbers. And it's, it's amazing and it's sad. The, the grumbling and complaining and the, the, the challenging of leadership that's constantly there. It, the people's tendency to complain plagued them and it wore down the leadership. Almost immediately, think about it, the context. God just delivered the people uh, from Egypt. They, they walked through waters that had been parted. God Almighty delivered them on the safe side of the sea. And within days, they began to complain about food and water. So God miraculously provides for them. He, he gives them manna from heaven, food for which they did not have to work. And then they complained they didn't have meat. And God gave them so much meat, they couldn't get the quail out from between their teeth. He disgorged them with it. And yet they still complained. They complained about Moses' leadership. Aaron and Miriam complained about Moses' wife Zipporah. The people even complained about God's judgment concerning their complaints. This is the tendency of our hearts. To murmur and to complain and to be dissatisfied in this fallen world. Throughout the wanderings in the wilderness, while most of the complaints appeared to be about the leadership, it in reality was a complaint lodged against God himself. Twice this was God's assessment. How long shall the wicked congregation grumble against me? He said in Numbers 14, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. That's why Moses was able to say, your grumbling's not against us, but it's against the Lord. What, what's going on here? The, the Lord is the one who has established that leadership, and their complaint against the leadership ultimately was a complaint against the Lord himself. So to state it another way, our attitude towards our leaders is often an attitude towards God, towards His hand of providence in which we live in this day. So obedience and submission to church leadership should involve prayer. Pray for us. It should involve a measure of honor and respect. And third, unless it violates conscience or the Scriptures, follow their lead. It's absolutely amazing how often people in our culture today, when there's a church on every corner, can get bent out of shape over all kinds of things that do not have to do with sound theology or biblical principle. Churches that have split over the color of the carpet. Churches that have split over robes or no robes in the choir. Over the most petty things to, to their shame, many believers have abandoned Christ-centered biblical churches because of personal preference. In their book, I quoted from them five, six, seven years ago, uh, Brian Habig and Les Newsom wrote a book entitled The Enduring Community. And this is what they, they see in terms of this passage applied to the community of the King, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They write, Submission means that I accept the fact that no church will ever do everything to my tastes. And the sooner I stop expecting it to do so, the better. 
I've mentioned before several times, I quote him at least once a month, a good friend of mine who's a deacon at Lexington Presbyterian. He said, if you have 500 people, you have 600 opinions. And it's very difficult when all these come in and their opinions are something that they hang on to so tightly that they begin to complain and murmur about leadership. Habig and Newsom continue, Submission ultimately to Christ means that I put his concerns over my own when I am in church. Submission means that I repent of what I do so glibly refer to as constructive criticism of the leadership and call it what it is, gossip. And then they conclude, the church is a body and I am either a productive member of that organization or I am a part of its dismemberment. God has called for godly leadership and submission, humble submission to Christ. And he's called for his people to as far as possible when the elders and deacons are pursuing godliness in Christ's glory to submit and honor them as well. And so what happens when there's godly leadership and where God's people are productive members and not part of a dismemberment of the body? In short, Everyone benefits. The leaders benefit. Verse 17, he says, Live in such a way to the members of the congregation, live in such a way that their ministry is a joy and delight to them, not an occasion for groaning. When that elder sees you coming, do they light up or do they groan? Uh, Is there this desire on your part to say, I want to so worship and work and serve and grow in grace? that that very growth in my life would be a joy to the leadership. John was able to say one of the things that gave him the greatest joy in ministry was to know that his children were growing in their love for Jesus, walking with him. And so we want to live lives by God's grace that encourage the leadership. Second, the people benefit. The writer states it negatively with regards to those who refuse to honor church leadership For what advantage would that be to you? But there's great advantage on the flip side when godly leadership is honored. There is the benefit and the blessing of the worship and work of God infused with a sense of joy and not strife. Infused with the sense of power of the Holy Spirit that as we gather together and with one heart and one voice, we seek to glorify our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. The people benefit. And finally, Christ benefits in a sense. What do I mean by that? His name, His reputation, His honor, the glory and fame of His name is exalted and exalted in the people of God, in His church. And we're set on a hill before a watching world. And the glory of Christ is seen throughout the nations through his church. The blessing is this. The writer pens it under inspiration of the Spirit. And just a few verses later, we often use this as a benediction. Verses 20 and 21, look at it in closing. Here's the benefit. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, who by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good for doing His will, working in us what is pleasing in 
His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Oh, may God be gracious to us and grant us both godly leadership, godly members to glorify Christ, who is the only king, the only head of his church. To him and him alone be the glory. Let's pray together. Father, this very passage is so contrary to our culture, so counterintuitive in many ways as we live and breathe the air of postmodernity, of anti-authority, anti-leadership, anti-obedience, anti-submission. And yet, O oh Christ, you call us as your church to bring glory and honor to Christ in our day and in our age by walking to the beat of a different drummer. And that beat is the heart and the word of our Savior himself, the King, the only head of his church. Bless us, we pray, as we continue to bring glory and honor in this place and far beyond through the name of Christ. Amen.